If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and uh, meet me in Proverbs uh, 16. I, I do not have the words up on the screen this morning. I apologize uh, for that, so I'd encourage you to pick up your Bibles. There's Bibles in the backs of the seats in front of you uh, as well that you can use. Um, we'll be looking at Proverbs 16. The first nine verses is where we'll, we'll land. Um, and I get the honor of concluding our time in Proverbs before we head into a holiday, a Christmas series uh, next Sunday. Um, once again, we'll just read the nine verses. I'll pray, and then we'll spend uh, our morning right there in the text. Proverbs 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And now, Father, as we engage uh, with your living word, I pray that we would tread carefully, yet cling confidently to your good and perfect word. I thank you that you have provided this to us so that we may have full hope and confidence in your work in our lives. Amen. As I prepared to preach this morning on this specific text, I couldn't help but think of a story that I heard as a little boy in Sunday school, a little fable, if you, if you will. Uh, the story goes that there was a man who had to escape to his rooftop because of a massive flood that hit the area. And as he stood on the rooftop and he saw the waters begin to rise, he began to pray that God would save him. And sure enough, moments later, a rowboat comes along and the man in the rowboat shouts out to the man, um, jump in, I can save you. And the man stranded on the rooftop declines and says, no, it's okay, I'm praying to God to save me uh, and I have faith that, that he'll rescue me. And so the, the rowboat moves on. And then a motorboat uh, s- s- comes flying by and the man in the motorboat shouts out to the man, And he says, hey, jump into the boat. I can save you. At which point for a second time, the stranded man shouts out, no, it's okay. I'm praying to God and I have faith that he is going to save me. So the motorboat went on and the waters continued to rise. At this point, the man's getting a little nervous because the water is coming up to his feet. He's wondering what in the world is God doing? So he begins to pray harder for God to save him. And sure enough, a helicopter comes flying in and the pilot throws down a rope. It says, grab the rope, I will pull you up and I will save you. And for the third time, the man calls out to the pilot and says, no, thank you. I'm praying to God and I have faith that he is going to save me. So the helicopter reluctantly flew away. Well, eventually, I'm sorry to say, the water rose above the rooftop, above the man and the man drowned. He dies He goes to heaven. He finally gets the chance to discuss the whole matter with God. He's got a bone to pick with him. 
uh, at which point, you know, he explained, I, I had faith and I prayed for you to save me, yet you let me drown. I don't understand why you let this happen. God gently responds, what do you mean I didn't try to save you? I sent you a rowboat, and then I sent you a motorboat, and then I sent you a helicopter. What did you expect? I tried all that I could do. It's a silly little story, but I think it serves as a very appropriate illustration for what's going on here in Proverbs 16. Last week, Pastor Mark began his sermon um, explaining that we have a multitude of choices to make. And these real choices have real consequences. Just as the drowning man chose not to take advantage of the rescue efforts of those around him, he suffered the consequence. But we also have to understand that is that behind the veil of human understanding, there is a hidden hand at work that we cannot see. And while we can't see it in a practical sense, it is still very real and very active. We simply call this the doctrine of providence. The doctrine of providence. Providence says that God is actively and personally at work in all things to govern, preserve, direct, so that ultimately his will may be accomplished and he may be glorified. Let me give you that definition again. Providence says that God is actively and personally at work in all things to govern, preserve, and direct so that ultimately his will may be accomplished and he may be glorified. Essentially, to summarize it, providence describes God's ongoing relationship with his creation. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, has said that if we understand that God is the all-powerful creator, it seems reasonable to conclude that he also preserves and governs everything in the universe as well. There is a continuation of God's work. God, God is not finished at creation. He kept going. He has not coiled us up like a little wind-up toy and then let us loose just to see what was going to happen. No, he is actively involved in the details, big and small. And we see this in our passage, right? In several verses, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The first part of verse 4, look at it. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. In verse 9, which is really the summary of these first nine verses, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his step. There is a continual working relationship happening between us and between God. And our struggle, in our own finite minds, our struggle with the doctrine of providence is that we don't always see the big picture. See, there is a massive, gargantuan, intricate, elaborate picture being painted by the master artist. And while we may see different brush strokes here and there in our life, we don't have the capacity to fully understand where the hand of the master artist is going. 
You know, typically, when I ask you to take a step back and get the full picture in a situation, that's just what I'm asking you to do. I'm saying you're looking at just one part of the picture. You need to step back so that you can see what's going on here. You can see all the, all the details of what's happening, the big picture, get the big picture. The problem in God's providence is because we're human, because we're limited, We are incapable to step back far enough that we can see the full picture, the whole picture, not just in in particular, any particular circumstance, any particular situation, but all of it. God's picture, we once again don't simply have the capacity. But while we don't see the big picture and we don't understand why certain things are happening to us, We have to understand that God not only sees the big picture, but he's directing the big picture. He is still at work in all things behind the scenes, behind the curtain to govern, preserve, and direct so that his will may be accomplished and his name be brought glory. This is clearly seen in the book of Esther. Um, Esther is one of only two books in the Bible that never mentions God. And I believe that the writer did this purposefully. Because whenever you see supernatural elements in Scripture, we see God receive the credit. It is always explained away by God's involvement. However, when you read the whole book of Esther, and it's best to read it as a whole rather than individual parts, it's impossible not to see God's footprint in the story. It's impossible not to see his involvement in the story. There are no supernatural events in Esther. However, what Esther accomplishes is that God is not only responsible for the extraordinary, but he is also God of the ordinary. He works through the simple and the mundane events of everyday life more than we even realize. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the book of Esther, it tells the story of an evil man named Haman, who was a counselor to the uh, Persian king, Ahasuerus. Haman had plotted to kill all of the Jewish people because of one encounter with a, a Jewish man named Mordecai who disrespected him. And as you see it play out in the story, prior to this little tiff, between Mordecai and Haman, Mordecai just happens to discover a separate unrelated plot to assassin King Ahasuerus. And then Mordecai told Queen Esther about this plot who just happens to be Mordecai's cousin. And Queen Esther just happens to be secretly Jewish. And this event just happened to be recorded in the chronicles of the kingdom. And then in Esther 6... After the edict had been set in motion to kill off the Jewish people, King Ahasuerus just happens one night to not be able to sleep. And he just happens to decide to read to pass the time. And he just happens to pick the chronicles of the kingdom. And he just happens to read the portion about Mordecai uncovering this plot to assassinate the king. And through this, at the end of the story, you'll see that not only did this save Mordecai's life, 
But all of these seemingly unrelated and irrelevant details come together at the end to redeem the Jewish people. Why? Because God's invisible hand was at work in the details behind the scenes to preserve his people. The closest thing that we get in Esther to a blatant reference of God's providence actually comes in chapter 4 when Mordecai is talking to Esther. He's sending a message to the queen, essentially asking for her help because of this decree to kill the Jews. And at first she refuses and she's reluctant. And then this is what Mordecai, who's full of faith, says in chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. He says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. He's talking to Esther. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The book of Esther goes into great detail about how Esther would become queen And all that Mordecai is saying here is, who knows? Maybe, I don't know, maybe God set these events in motion, Esther, so that you can be at the right place at the right time to help God in his purposes, to redeem the Jewish people, to deliver the Jews. And she does, and the Jews are redeemed. And what's amazing is that through this process of providence, God takes the ordinary, the seemingly ordinary events of life, and he makes them extraordinary. He takes the natural and he orchestrates it so they then become supernatural. And this is what I mean by that. It's like an elaborate or elaborate or complicated machine. How a machine is made up of simple parts. You know, while there's nothing significant about these parts in and of themselves, and while these certain parts serve a very, very simple task, you know, their purpose is extremely simple when you put them together, when they are orchestrated to work like a machine, they create something as a whole that is is magnificent. The sum of the parts is much more significant than the parts in it of themselves. And this is is true in God's dealing in the ordinary. He takes the simple moments in your life. He orchestrates them to make something incredible. And this should bring us great comfort because consider the alternative of blind, random fate. This idea of an impersonal force This feeling that just everything is happenstance and we're merely a speck in the universe that just happens to be hurling tens of thousands of miles an hour into the vastness of space and time by accident. We just happen to be in this time and we just happen to be sitting here and we just happen to be doing this or that activity and there's no particular reason. It just is what it is. There's there's no reason. If we're subjugated to fate, then go and do whatever you want because there's no purpose in this life. I'm sorry to tell you that your life and everything you stand for is meaningless, if that's the case. This is a terribly depressing idea, is it not? 
And it's not an idea that Scripture teaches. No, Scripture teaches that there is a purpose in our life. Scripture teaches us that there is a purpose in the details of life. There is a purpose to you sitting here at this very moment. You are here for a reason. I don't know what it is. I hope you do. But I can tell you that behind the scenes, there is an even greater purpose. You are not sitting here in this room at this time, listening to this message by accident. You are here for a reason. And if we are under God's providential governance and oversight, then I serve a purpose. And if I serve a purpose, then everything I do counts for something. It would be easy to kind of sit back on the couch and watch it play out. But that's rather hopeless once again, is it not? It's like when I watch uh, football on TV and I have no real control over anything. It's extremely depressing being a Cleveland fan as I watch the events play out. I wish I could get in there and have some kind of control or my Sunday afternoon would be much better spent. The same is true in life. It would be easy to sit back on the couch and watch it all play out. It would be easy to coast through this life spiritually without having any real impact because, you know, God's under control. However, this would be a terrible misunderstanding of the doctrine of providence. Once again, Wayne Grudem says this in that regard. He says, God's providential direction should not lead us to deny the reality of our choices and actions. Again and again, Scripture affirms that we really do cause events to happen. We are significant, and we are responsible. We do have choices, and these are real choices that bring about real results. Just as God created things in nature with certain properties, God has made us in such a wonderful way that he has endowed us with the property of willing choice. A hearty belief in God's providence is not a discouragement, but a spur to action. And Proverbs 16 is great because it shows that there is a marriage, if you will, between God's sovereignty and human action. We get this question all the time as pastors. The question of do we have human choice? Do we have human choice or does God control all things? And the answer is yes. It's Two sides to the same coin, they are not mutually exclusive, and Scripture affirms them both. And I love Proverbs 16 because other other places in Scripture, you will see it talk about God's providence and sovereignty blatantly. And then in other portions of Scripture, you will see it talk about the, the, the choice of man, the free choice of man blatantly. But when you come to, to Proverbs 16... The two converge, the two collide, the two come together as one idea, one thought. And we see this once again specifically in verse 9. Let me read it for you again. The heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So we look deeper into that. When you hear the word, the heart of man plans, the, the, the heart that plans, the idea that we, that we get here, the basic idea to, to plan in the heart is to carefully set things in order. As you, are, as you are planning your Thanksgiving meal, you are carefully setting things in motion so that the meal will be ready at 2 o'clock on Thursday afternoon. 
You are carefully planning things out. These are thorough, thought-out plans. These are not half-baked ideas. They are not impulsive plans. And what this shows us is that there is a human responsibility to plan and plan well and then let God work through the plans of our heart. You will be happy to know that in these walls, in these walls of FAC, we do work hard, believe it or not, to plan and plan well. Sometimes we do a good job of it, sometimes we don't, but it's not for a lack of trying. I can assure you uh, that this morning, uh, Brittany, our worship director, did not wake up and say, gee, I wonder what songs we should sing this morning and then promptly hand the songs over to the band as they showed up for practice before we played. I guarantee you that John Sear, our children's director, uh, didn't wake up this morning and said, all right, God, what, what should we teach the kids today? No, we're, we're planning and we're trying to plan here. Around here we work hard, we plan hard, we pray hard, and then we leave the results to God. The heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. See, the fruit of our labor, what is manifested, what comes to fruition, what endures is God's responsibility. And we see this in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7, this is what Paul writes. He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. What Paul is saying is, hey, I needed to take action by planting the seeds of the gospel in the hearts of men. And Apollos needed to make the choice, needed to take action by watering and caring for those hearts. But ultimately, it's God. It's God is the one who receives credit for its growth. Once again, around here at FAC, we call this the greenhouse model, the greenhouse effect. We here have figuratively um, established seven greenhouses. It's children, youth, Sunday morning, seniors, life groups, stewardship, and missions. No particular order. But what we believe is that in those particular contexts, if we set up the greenhouse, if we build the greenhouse to meet the needs of the people that are involved and actively engaged in those ministries, if we set the stage, so to speak, if we build this greenhouse, then God will make things grow. If we plan hard and develop them to the best of our ability, God will transform. He will use our work to establish our steps. We believe that in order to transform Erie by introducing people to a transformational relationship with Jesus Christ, we have to plan well. We have to build these greenhouses and then God will work. And so we as humans act according to our intentions, but God is at work in those acts. Our desires, our plans, our efforts work into his process of providence. See, our work ends up being the very material that God uses to bring about his purposes. And these two are not in conflict with each other. They actually work in cooperation with each other. And so, yes, we have a very real effect 
on the world that surround, surrounds us. And our choices have very real consequences, both good and bad. And this is what's described in the gaps of our passage that we've yet to look at. So take a look at verses 2 through 5. It says this, All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. I read on to verse 6. Here we get a picture of two different people with two different outcomes. And it's as simple as the submissive one saying, God, your will be done. And the arrogant one saying, no, my will, not yours, my will be done. And Solomon warns us about the danger that lurks in our very heart. You see, we are already bent towards a self-seeking disposition. Why? Because as Solomon writes, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. What he's saying is that we, are nat- we will naturally claim innocence. We very rarely see our own sin and guilt right off the bat. In a given situation, I am always the one being wronged. I am always the one doing the right thing. I'm always the one that's, that's going, going all the way, going the distance to make ends meet. I'm the one that's, that's innocent, not, not them. Right? We're naturally bent to that because we don't see our own sin and guilt. Jeremiah, the prophet, reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things. Right? The, the, our, our assessment of ourselves is limited and distorted. When we weigh our motivations on our own scale, it is unbalanced. It always favors us. It always carries with it selfish ambition. And so while we're innocent in our own guy in our own eyes, God is weighing the spirit on a different scale, his own scale. He's evaluating the plans of the human heart and he has no sin to cloud his vision. His scale is not bias. You know, God is much better at seeing our motivations for what they really are. This is why we need wisdom literature in the Bible. This is why we need instruction outside of ourselves. Because left to myself, I will not be able to make the wise choice. Left to to myself, I will always do what's wrong. My motivations are always going to have the selfish bent to them. And that's why we've been taking the last several months to go through Proverbs, to look at wisdom, because we need something outside of ourselves to weigh our hearts and to weigh our motivations. And this is why Solomon's counsel to us is to commit your work to the Lord. Commit the... Commit your work to the Lord. This word commit literally means to roll over. Solomon is saying, uh, take your work and roll it over to God. The, the, all the commentators on this passage will say that there is a very real sense of finality here, right? It's this idea that I am going to plan hard, give my work over to God, and then leave it there. 
I'm going to surrender the work of my hands over to God, and I'm not going to pick it back up again. I'm not going to uh, manipulate the situation. I'm not going to finagle with it. I'm not going to try and control it myself. I'm not going to try and depend on, uh, count on its success by my own human wit. No, I am going to roll it over to God and let him take it from there. And it's only when we do this, then and only then that your plans will be established, your plans will be made solid if you align yourself with God. If your heart desires what his heart desires, then you will see your plans established through his providential work. And the plans of your heart will far surpass the work of the wicked. The plans of your heart that have been established, that have been made strong, will go beyond anything any evil person could do. And while there seems to be victory for those who willingly go against God's will, we're told that in God's providence, the arrogant in heart will not go unpunished. And their victories are merely temporary. Due to their own self-perception of being elevated above God, the, the arrogant, in their arrogance, they are detestable and they will come face to face with disaster. And just as the righteous will be established and the righteous will get their due, the wicked will also get their due. They will get what's coming to them based purely on their choice to actively rebel against God. In the grand scheme of things, as we participate with God in history, God alone will establish only what is pure, only what is holy, and then he will eradicate the rubbish. He, he will uphold everything that's good, everything that's right, everything that's true, everything that's righteous, everything that aligns with his will, and then he will destroy the rest. He will destroy anything that does not align with him. In a sense, as one commentator says, these Proverbs draw a portrait of a God whose intentions for good cannot and will not be thwarted. They cannot, they will not be thwarted, God's own intentions for good. Now, unfortunately for us, there's a whole lifetime before that day comes. Unless Jesus comes back in my lifetime, I will live my entire life exposed to the brokenness of the world. I will walk my entire journey vulnerable to the evil that currently reigns in this world and in my heart. And because there's human choice, we will be subject to the effects of evil and brokenness which leads us really to an inevitable question, a giant elephant in the room. If God is actively and personally at work in all things to govern, preserve, and direct so that ultimately his will may be accomplished and he may be glorified, if that's the case, why am I suffering right now? Why am I going through this painful season of life. And we find ourselves calling out to him in desperation, God, where are you? 
Why aren't you responding to me? Why is this happening? Where are you in my life? Are you listening to me? Can you, can you even hear me? And it's in those moments that we feel abandoned by God. However, it's in those moments that we need to cling even harder to the doctrine of God's providence. I hope the story of Joseph can be an encouragement to you. At the end of Genesis, um, we read the story of Joseph. He was one of 12 boys, and he was the favored son. His father treated him better than his other brothers, and his brothers got so tired of it that they ended up kidnapping him and throwing him in a pit, uh, nearly killed him. Eventually, they sell him into slavery. However, through God's providence, he winds up in Egypt working for Pharaoh, who probably at this time is one of the most powerful men in the world. And as you read Joseph's story, you see him um, face some of the greatest trials that a human could experience. You know, from being rejected and abandoned by his own brothers, by nearly being killed by his own brothers, by being sold into slavery by his own brothers. At one point, he's falsely accused and thrown into prison. He's an innocent man serving jail time. And then in prison, he becomes the forgotten prisoner, right? He had every reason to abandon God because it seems as though through the years, God had abandoned him. And this wasn't overnight. This, this, this was decades. This was decades. And you could imagine Joseph sitting in his jail cell saying, God, where are you? Can you hear me? Are you listening? We find, however, that the story comes full circle. When Joseph rises again to become Pharaoh's right-hand man, he's put in charge of managing the country's food reserve in a severe time of famine, right? People's lives are now depending on Joseph and his governance of the food reserve. And it turns out that his brothers end up going down to Egypt in order to seek aid, and they are reunited with their brother whom they once attempted to kill. They didn't recognize him, and so you may be thinking, oh boy, it's time for Joseph to get his revenge. I turn about his fair play, right? However, he forgives them, and he grants them mercy. Why? Because Joseph has a very healthy understanding of God's providence. As Joseph revealed himself to them, he tells them in Genesis 45, verses 4 through 5, this is what he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve life and not just anybody's life, your life. He goes on later in chapter 50 to say, as for you, once again speaking to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph understands and he knows 
that he had to go through decades of suffering, decades of pain, so that he could be in the right place at the right time to save the lives of many. What they intended for evil, God meant for good. As I mentioned earlier, evil and brokenness will never undo God's redemptive purposes. And even as the wicked pursue their own devices, they are unconsciously playing right into the hand of God. Even in their wickedness, God uses it to accomplish his purpose. This is the entire narrative of the Bible right here. All of Scripture by and large, points to one single event, the most heinous crime in human history, Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. At the hands of evil men, they put Jesus on a cross. The very instrument that the devil and man used to try and snuff out God and his purposes ends up being the very instrument that God uses to deliver mankind from death to life. The cross, the very personification of death itself in the ancient world is now a symbol that we wear proudly and points to life. There is no amount of evil in this world that will thwart God's plan. And how did this all come about because of one man's willing choice to go to the cross. A choice that he struggled with, no less. A choice that when, faced, uh, when he came face to face with it, he cried out to his father, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he died, cried out to his father, shouting out to him, if there is any other way to go about doing this, Father, if there is any other way, can you please take this burden of responsibility away from me? If there's any other way to rescue mankind, give me an out. But at the end of the prayer, Jesus looks up and says, however, if there's not, may your will be done and not mine. Let your will be done and not mine. In my moments of suffering, in my moments of of heartbreak, I turn to God. And while I don't understand his will, I do understand that his will is best. His truth is much easier to understand in the mind, yet extremely difficult to penetrate the heart. I don't know why you received that diagnosis. I don't know why your marriage is falling apart. I don't know why you've been victimized physically. I wish I did. I promise you that if I did, I would tell you, but I don't. I may never, and you may never. However, in those moments, we must as a former pastor of mine has said, bring what I don't know into the light of what I do know. We need to connect what I don't know with what I do know. What do I know? I know 
that through Christ's death and God's glorious providence, those that come to him, those that follow Jesus can be healed, can be mended, can be made whole, can be fixed, can be restored. And while you may not be able to see him or hear him, you have to understand that his hidden hand is at work in your life. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you. In my own life, I've seen the brush strokes. And while there have been seemingly unanswered calls, while I feel, Lord, I don't understand everything going on in my own life, I know that you do. And I entrust that to you. I pray that this would be on our hearts and minds as we go from this place, as we wrestle in your divine providence as we're at its grip, that while it may seem like an abyss to us, it is not an abyss to you. And we trust you for that, Father. I pray, Lord, even as we um, now display an act of worship through the, the giving and the contributions of what you've blessed us with, that we would use this money to willingly make your name known. And I pray, Father, that you would use it to accomplish your will and that you would be glorified. Bless our offering, Lord, to that manner and transform uh, this city, transform this church, transform my heart, Lord. And in your holy name I pray, amen.